listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, as you have a seat, let me introduce myself. My name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm thankful uh, to have the opportunity to be here with you, to open God's Word, to read it together, to talk about what it means for our lives. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 36, Um, and as you're turning there, let me set up where we have been. Over a year ago, we started a sermon series through the gospel according to Matthew that we've been calling All Authority. And the reason why we call that is because if you read through the gospel of Matthew, what becomes clear is that that is his primary point. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, wants his audience to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And again, we started this series over a year ago. And if you can believe it, we are actually getting toward the end, only a handful of chapters to go. And since January, we have been focusing our attention on the last week of Jesus's life and his earthly ministry, a life that he tells his disciples three times that's recorded in the gospel of Matthew. He says that he is going to die. And so for the disciples who are understanding or their understanding of the Messiah, that would be confusing for them. But for us on this side, we know what Jesus is talking about. We know that his life is ultimately going to end with him being what? Arrested, beaten, mocked, spit on, and then wrongfully convicted to die on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem for sins that he didn't commit. Historically, the church would call that day Good Friday. And what makes that day so good is because the Bible says that Right before Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, he musters all the strength he can in his body, pushes up against the nail that's driven through his feet, fills his lungs with air, and says one word in the original Greek, tetelestai, which the ESV translates, it is finished. A literal translation of that word would be paid in full. Church, this is the good news of the gospel that Jesus, the eternal son of God, who Colossians 1 says all things were created by and everything was created for him, the one who has always been and will always be, the one who is the visible image of the invisible God, that Jesus comes to earth, he lives the life that you and I could never live and then on that cross, he dies the death that we deserve to die fully paying the penalty for our sin. And then after three days in the grave, Lungs, not breathing, heart, not beaten. After three days in the grave, he is resurrected from the dead, forever overcoming the power of sin and death. And he spends 40 days with his disciples before he ascends to heaven, where he is right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. How many of us would say, I'm a believer in Jesus. I believe he is who he says he is. How many of us would believe that? And then how much of our time do we spend completely ignoring the reality that the eternal son of God who came, lived, and died is now alive? And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father where he is waiting, the Bible says, for the day, Revelation 21 says, he will return and make all things new. This is why we gather to sing songs and to hear the word of God proclaimed because this is who he is and this is what he does. Because Jesus is the one with all authority and because through his life and his death and his resurrection, he has paid in full the penalty for our sin and he has made a way for us, you and me, sinners, to be brought back into a relationship with the Holy God. Amen. And since January, we've been focusing on the final week of Jesus' life leading up to what happens on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But in chapter 24, it's Tuesday. 
It's Tuesday. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. Earlier that day, he had been teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's been uh, he's going to a town called Bethany, which is two miles east. And we don't know why he does this. So before Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he goes to Bethany first. Then he goes to Jerusalem. And then that night, back to Bethany. And then on Monday, Jerusalem, back to Bethany. Jerusalem, back to Bethany. We don't know why he does this. I have a theory. Um, what we do know from the Bible is that that's where Jesus' friends lived. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Y'all remember Lazarus? John chapter 11, Jesus raises him from the dead. I think they go stay in Bethany because once you raise somebody from the dead, you don't have to ask for permission to stay at their house anymore. You know? So he shows up and he's like, really? Jesus again? All your disciples? You want to stay here? He goes, hey, remember that time I raised you from the dead? And then the conversation's over, right? No, I'm kidding. That's not true at all. Either way, they like to go to Bethany and Jesus and his disciples were headed there. And in order to get there from Jerusalem, you have to cross what is called the Mount of Olives. And Bill showed this picture last week. This is uh, a picture from the Mount of Olives looking back toward the west at the city of Jerusalem. They were gonna continue down the Mount of Olives to the southeastern slope where Bethany was. And again, Jesus is there um, and his disciples come to him and they ask him two questions. We talked about this last week. Chapter 24, verse three says this. They, disciples, say to him, Jesus, tell us when will these things be? When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Essentially, they ask Jesus, when will you come back? And how are we gonna know when it's getting close? Right, and we have to know what's underneath that. Again, they're the disciples of Jesus. They had expectations about the Messiah. And so far, he had not met very many of them. And they're saying, if you're the one with all authority, when are you gonna rule and reign? When are you gonna come back? When are you gonna restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus does not answer the when, but he does begin to tell the what, the things that will begin to happen before he returns. And Bill talked about that last week. You can go listen online if you want to. We're gonna pick it up today. In verse 36, Matthew chapter 24, says, but concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. So concerning that day and that hour, what day is Jesus talking about here? Talking about the second coming. Talking about the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ, the day that Jesus will make all things new. And I mentioned this before, but I love the way the Jesus storybook Bible describes that day. I don't know what that says about me. Maybe that I just have kids. Maybe that I think like a seven-year-old. I don't know. But it says this, when Jesus comes back, the sky's gonna crack open and he will make all the wrong things right and all the dark things light. This is the day that Jesus is talking about. He says, there's a day, angels don't even know when it is. The son doesn't even know. And I wanna say something about that. But before we do, let's not miss the point. Jesus says, no one knows when it will happen, but we are certain that it will happen. No one knows when, but we are certain that it will happen. There is a day coming where everything that's wrong in the world will be made right because of who Jesus is and what he's gonna do. There is a day where everything that's dark in this world will be made light, where Jesus will return and establish his kingdom once and for all. And the point of this whole passage that we're gonna look at today is that we're not supposed to know when, but we are to be sure of the what. Not supposed to know when, but we should be sure of the what. Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels or the son, but the father only, which means the father knows when, it's happening. It will happen and the father knows when. And Jesus wants the certainty of this future event to anchor us in the present. 
Doesn't give us the wind, but he wants us to be sure of the what. And again, the what is the day the sky will crack open and Jesus will come back to make all things new. Establish his kingdom, he'll sit on the throne and rule forever. He's saying this, since you know what will happen then, it should change the way that you live now. Jesus is saying, the day is coming, but only the Father knows when. And I don't know about you, but when I read verse 36 the first couple times, it creates some questions in my mind. How can Jesus not know when? Isn't he fully God? Isn't God all-knowing, right? Psalm 147 says that God, the triune God, they know every star that has ever existed or will ever exist. It will ever exist. How can he not know when he will return, right? And people have all sorts of thoughts about what this means. I think the simplest explanation is the right one here, that Jesus is speaking in terms of his humanity. He's speaking in terms of his humanity. There are other, yes, he's fully God, and in that sense, he has infinite knowledge, but there are other verses like this in the Bible. Matthew 4, he says, he was hungry. Right? Does God get hungry? John 19 says he was thirsty. John 4 says he was tired. Does God get tired? No, the Bible says he doesn't sleep or slumber. So how do these two things work? This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. What does that mean? Doesn't matter. Here's what I'll tell you. It means, <laughs> it means that somehow, God is simultaneously infinite, eternal, and all-knowing, and yet fully human. Somehow Jesus is fully God and fully human, even though he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and has eternally existed outside of time. All right, let me blow your mind real quick. The fact that God has eternally existed and does outside of time means that your past and your future aren't just things he knows about. They are places he is. You're like, wait a minute. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Even though he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and has eternally existed outside of time, Galatians 4 says this, when the fullness of time had come, the Father sends the Son that he might redeem us. So, the Bible teaches that the infinite Jesus willingly limits himself and enters into the frailty of humanity from his birth until his resurrection. And it is in that sense, in his humanity, that Jesus would say, verse 36, not even the Son knows the hour. Again, he doesn't give us the wind, but he wants us to be certain of what will happen in the future to anchor our lives in the present. It's what this whole passage is about. Look at verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So no one knows when, but it will happen. And when it does, Jesus just says, there will be people who don't expect it. It's coming, and it'll be like the days of Noah, right? He makes this comparison. It's like before the flood. People were just living their lives like normal. They were eating, they were drinking, they were being married. And even the people who knew about Noah and what he was doing, and he was building this boat in the middle of the desert because God told him it was gonna rain so much that it was gonna flood the earth over the mountains. They dismissed it because that's easy to dismiss, right? It sounds crazy. Okay, old man, God told you it was gonna rain. You're gonna build a boat. I'm gonna go about my business, right? You're, it's, again, modern-day Iraq, it's gonna rain so much that it's gonna flood. They, they dismissed him. They heard the news and they were thinking, there is no way that that should change anything about the way I live my life now. They dismiss it. Verse 39 tells us why. Here's the key word. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. This word unaware, most of the time, it's translated to know. This is an important theme in, the, in all this passage. We'll keep coming back to it. The, the reality is they heard it, they knew, but they didn't know. 
They didn't believe it. They didn't know in such a way that it changed anything about the way they lived their lives now. They were unaware, it says, until what? Until the flood came. Until it happened. And then it was too late. Jesus says, this is how it will be when he comes back, that there will be people who dismiss it because it sounds crazy and they won't expect it. It'll be too late. It'll be too late, right? And then he starts giving his disciples a framework on how to think about this. Verse 40, then he says, when that happens, two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, he says this, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. So twice here in these few verses, Jesus says, stay awake. That word means to pay attention or to be on alert. Same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 5, talking about how we should approach and be aware of an enemy. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Same word, stay awake. Because... Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The point is that if you knew that there was a lion prowling around you that wanted to eat you, you'd pay attention to it, wouldn't you? If you knew that there was a lion that was coming one day and if you didn't do something about it, it would eat you, you would pay attention. Twice he says, stay awake, pay attention. This is what he's doing because you don't know when the day is coming, but it is coming. Stay awake. And then in verse 43, he tells a little story about a thief. Basically says, if you knew a guy was coming to take your stuff tonight, would you go to bed like normal? No. At the very least, you'd go stay with your friend. <laughs> if you were too scared, like, here, have my stuff. Just to, you, know? you would do something about it. That's what he's saying. You would go all Macaulay Culkin on him. Nine o'clock comes around. You're about to eat your mac and cheese. You go, no, no, no mac and cheese for me. I got a battle plan. We got to pay attention because Marvin Harry are coming, right? That's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, you know what will happen. It should change the way you live. Look at verse 44. Therefore, since that's true, since you know what's happening, you also must be what? Let's try it again. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the question I think that God wants us to answer this morning. Are we ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Now, I don't know what's going on in your mind right now, but I think before we can answer that question, we need to know what, what does it mean to be ready? What does that look like, right? And, and luckily, we don't have to guess. Like all of us just take our best guess and go, well, I think this is what it means, or I think this is what it means, because there's a lot at stake, right? And Jesus is actually going to tell us what it means to be ready, and that's what we'll see here in the rest of this passage. Look at verse 45. He kind of tells a couple stories, a couple parables that help us understand what it means to be ready. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So basically, faithful servant is the one who knows his master's coming and so he's faithful with his stuff in the meantime. And then he says this, Verse 48, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant is gonna come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he does not know. Verse 51, and he'll cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord, not the word of Clint. All right, if you're a guest with us, this is what God says, not what I say. But the point is, there's high stakes. 
Jesus isn't saying be ready for something that may or may not come. This will happen and the stakes are high, so be ready. And I think it's easy to get lost in the weeds here, especially in verse 51, and we miss the point of what Jesus is making. Remember, who's he talking to here? On the Mount of Olives, he's talking to his disciples. That's an important detail because he talks about servants. So he's not talking about random crowds and, and calling them to repentance. He's talking to people who have already followed him and asked him question, when are you gonna rule and reign forever? And he, and he says, there's two different types of servants. There's faithful and wise servants and then there's the wicked servants. And the point of the story is that these are the only two categories of people. There's not a middle ground when it comes to, to being ready for Jesus to return. There's no like kind of halfway or, or half partial credit that you can get. You are either ready or you're not. You're either ready for him to come back or you're not. And once you understand that, then there's some things that Jesus wants us to know about what it looks like to be ready. Look at chapter 25, verse one says, then, since that's true, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. So, the word here, let me just address the elephant in the room. The word virgins is what we would call bridesmaids, okay? So you're thinking about wedding. What kind of wedding is this? <laughs> There's 10 of them. I don't wanna be a part of that wedding, but um, this is about bridesmaids, okay? And again, there's two categories of people. 10 bridesmaids, five faithful, five foolish. Five wise, five foolish. And I don't wanna spend too much time on this, but Jesus tells this parable with, to a group of people who would have a, a cultural, contextual understanding about a wedding. So when I say wedding, you think of some things because it's informed by our culture, them too. This was told in the first century Jewish understanding of what a wedding is, which is different than ours. Let me just give you some high points of that. Typically, marriages would be arranged by parents when their children were young, all right? And we don't like that idea, but we kind of do it too already. Like I have a daughter and then, you know, my friends have a son and we go, oh, look, hey, let's put them together. Oh, what might happen, right? We kind of do it. We just don't hold them to it. Like if they didn't want to, we'd be like, all right, fine, marry who you want. But they would, okay? They would hold them to it. And as they got older, they would move into this period of what we would consider engagement, but it was what they would call betrothal. And they would share vows. Vows would be shared to kind of kick off engagement. They would be considered married. Vows had been exchanged and they would need a certificate of divorce to actually separate, but they wouldn't live like they were married yet. What would happen is the groom would go back to his family's house and begin making preparations, either building a room on or building a separate house altogether to prove and show that he could provide for his bride. And when that was done, the last phase would start. It's called the wedding feast. And the groom and his groomsmen would come to the bride's house, get the bridesmaids, and they would start this journey through the longest route possible through town, uh, announcing their wedding, headed back to the wedding feast, announcing their marriage, kind of like trick-or-treating for wedding gifts, you know? Take the longest route possible. Here's a toaster, congratulations. You know, here's your cutting board or whatever. Um, that's what was happening. And the grooms and groomsmen would do this and then it would kick off a week-long party that would then end in them being married. Seven days. So next time you're at a reception, you're like, man, when are they gonna leave? Just remember, at least it could be worse, right? It could be a week. Anyways, um, oftentimes this parade would be done at night as they walk back through the house. And so it would be the responsibility of the bridesmaids to make sure they had what we'll see here is called a lamp. Better translation is probably torch. Um, and, and it would be their responsibility to do that. Why? Because if they're walking through in the dark, no streetlights, they would need to be able to see. That's really the, that's the context that we wouldn't know about. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. And in the story, the bride's not even mentioned. It's just the bridesmaids and the groom. And all we know so far is there's 10 of them, five were faithful and wise, and five were foolish. Look at verse three. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So five wise, five foolish bridesmaids. There's only one thing that actually differentiates them between each other in the text. You see what it is? One group has no oil. Everything else is the same. They're all waiting. They're all in the right place at the right time with the wedding garment. They're all there. One group has no oil. One, even after the groom, it is delayed. It takes longer than it's expected. They have their lamps. They're all shined up and ready. Verse seven even says they respond the same way. They hear the groom's there. They get up, all of them. They trim their lamps, get them ready. They, They get dressed and they go out to meet the groom. The only difference is that one group has what they need to light the lamp. The other doesn't. Verse 10, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus says this to his disciples, watch therefore, same word, stay awake for you do not know the day or the hour. The key to understanding this parable is verse 11 and 12 when they come to him and the groom says, I do not know you. Jesus applies this, watch therefore. Again, be ready. His point is this to us. You need to make sure you have what you need. You need to make sure you have what you need. The five foolish bridesmaids, they looked just like the five wise ones. They had everything externally, but they lacked what they needed internally. They had their lamp, but nothing to light it with. Verse nine sounds harsh, right? They're like, hey, can we borrow some oil? And they're like, no way, go to the store. <laughs> you know, It seems harsh, like why couldn't they just give them some? The point here, Jesus isn't teaching be selfish with your lamp oil. Um, it's meant to teach us what will be required of us one day. It cannot be borrowed from someone else. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, if we wanna be ready, then it's not good enough to just look the part on the outside. We need something on the inside. He's saying, if you wanna be ready, what you need is faith. You need faith. The bridesmaids with no oil, they're not ready. And so they go out looking for some, but it's too late. They can't find what they need. They go to the party anyways, and they ask him. The groom, they say, can we come in? The groom responds, truly I say to you, I don't know you. I do not know you. What's this remind you of? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. The point is, if we wanna be ready, then it's not about what we do, even if what we do is amazing. Did you hear that list? They prophesied in his name. They are declaring prophetically the word of God to anyone who will listen. Jesus goes, it ain't enough. They go, we casted out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, if you don't know me, it doesn't matter. Externally isn't gonna cut it. You need to, it's it's inside, you need faith. It's not about what you do. It's about whether or not we have put our faith in what Jesus has done. And I say this all the time, but church, the claim of Christianity is not do your best your whole life and hope that one day it's enough. The claim is that at our very worst, while we were yet sinners, Romans 5 says, Christ died for us. 
While we were at our worst, God gives us his best in Jesus, not because of how hard we tried or how much better we got after we became a Christian, but because a resurrected Jesus reaches down into our dead life and he gives us grace that we would never deserve. And he meets us every moment of every day with mercy that we could never earn. Jesus says, you wanna be ready. What you need works inside out, not outside in. It's not enough to look the part. It's not enough to go to church or read your Bible or give your money or fill in the blank. Not that those are bad things because they're not. It is good and right for you to be here. It's just not gonna make you right. It's not enough to do those things. It also, he says, cannot be borrowed. What makes you a Christian is not because you grew up in a Christian home or because you went to church camp or because your grandmother has prayed for you every day since you've been alive. God bless her. What makes you a Christian is whether or not you have put your faith in what Christ has done for you, that what he did on the cross counts for you. That was your death that he died. And now because of him, through faith, you are restored into right relationship with Jesus. This is why he says in verse 13, watch, therefore, pay attention to this. Because he says, stay awake. Not wake up once, stay awake. The reason why is because there is a temptation. And I've experienced this, so I know you have. There's a temptation in the Christian life to to move from putting our faith in what Jesus has done for us to put our faith in what we can do for him. That's why Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 5. Watch out. There's a lion roaring around because we have an enemy who is doing everything he can to lull us to sleep to the reality of the good news of the gospel for us in this moment. And anything he can do to get us to move our feet off the rock back onto the sand, if we use the illustration from Matthew 7, to say, it's up to you. You want God to love you? Then you do enough, be enough, work harder, do better, try harder. He says, watch therefore, church, the gospel isn't a door you walk through to enter the Christian life. The gospel is the soil of the Christian life. And we root ourselves into the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are convinced of God's love for us and we're compelled by that to love the people around us. We don't love to earn God's love. We become convinced that it is given to us despite the fact that's not what we deserve. Faith in Jesus doesn't mean wake up once, but rather we stay awake to the realities of who God is and what he's done in church. Again, we have this enemy who wants to lull us to sleep. And can I just tell you, he's good at it. He's good at it. Whatever he can do to get us to doubt the goodness of God, to believe the gospel does not count for you because of your past or because of your present or because of your anxiety or your worry or whatever. If you wanna be ready, what you need is faith, not faith in what you can do. Faith in what he has done. Faith in the only one. The only one who can simultaneously cover the sin of your past, sustain you in the present, and hold every bit of your future. We need faith. Church, are you ready? Let's keep going, verse 14. Jesus says, for it, what's the it? The coming of the Son of Man, the second return of Jesus Christ. It's gonna be like this, he says, like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusted to them his property. All right, that's the key key words in in that first verse. There's a man, his servants, he entrusts to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. So Jesus says, there's a man who's gonna go on a journey, he brings three servants to himself and he gives them talents, all right? When we hear the word talent, we think ability or gifting, we think if someone's talented, they have a skill set that maybe other people don't because they're talented. Well, biblically, a talent was actually a measurement of weight. 
A better word for us would be to think like a ton. So the word would read, hey, there's this man who had his servants, he brought to himself and he gave them a ton. One, he gave five tons. One, he gave two tons. One, he gave one ton. And what question would you have if you read that? A ton of what? Because a ton of diamonds and a ton of rocks is worth a bunch of different things, right? They're both rocks. So it, it, and what we see in the scriptures is he doesn't, what's interesting, it's assumed that it's just money because a talent of the currency of the day would be like 15 or 20 years wages and that's what's assumed in the story. But it never says that. I think there's two reasons why it never says that. One, it doesn't say what they're given because the point of the peril isn't what they're given. The point of the parable is what do they do with what they're given? And then the second reason I think it doesn't say that is because he's not just talking about money. He's talking about everything we have. Money, yes, gifts, talents, your job, your relationships, your marriage, your hobbies, everything that makes you you, your home, your strengths, your weaknesses, all of it. So there's this man and he gives talents to three of his servants, but he doesn't give them out equally. Five, two, and one. And what do you think when you hear that? It's not fair, right? That's not fair. Why does he get five or he get two or he get, what do they do to earn five? I hear this in my house all the time. Why does he get candy and I don't? She got three. I only got two. It's not fair, right? That's what we hear. And, and here's what I would say to that. Psalm 115, verse three, it says that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's what I say to my kids too when they say that. I do whatever I want. The point here is it doesn't matter what we think is fair. What matters is that this is how the infinite God of the universe decided it would work in his wisdom, not ours. So we go, that's not fair. He goes, yeah, look what it says, verse 15. He gave them each according to their own ability. This word ability, it means strength or power. This means that God gives out different things to different people based on what he knows they have the capacity for. God determines this. It means we're all different according to the purpose and the plan of God. We're all uniquely wired and gifted by the God of the universe. And we'll see what for here in a second. Look at verse 16. I'm gonna read through the rest of the parable, take a little bit, and then we'll talk about what this means. He who had received the five talents went at once and he traded with them. And he made five talents more. And so also he who had two talents more, sorry, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and his, hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. And he said, master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. For to everyone who has, more will be given he who will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even that will be taken away. And listen to this. 
These are the stakes. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. Just like the stories before, there are two types of people in the parable. Three servants, only two types of people. Again, there's no in-between. Are you ready or not? Did you notice the, the exact same thing the master says to the two-talent guy and the five-talent guy? Verse 21 and verse 23 are the exact same. What's it say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Here's the thing. That's not fair either, right? Because one guy has 10 and the master says, well done, enter into the joy. And one guy only has four, but the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. The point is it's not about what you have. Because God is the one who's given it to you anyways. It's not about what you have. It's about what you do with it. Verse 16, it says the guy who had five talents, he went at once. He had a sense of urgency and a desire to take what he had been given by the master and to get to work with it. And the point is this, the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the final judgment, which we will talk about next week, but the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ should create a sense of urgency in us if we believe that it's true. That's what he's saying. If you believe that this will happen then, it should change the way you live now. There should be a sense of urgency in us. Jesus is saying, if you wanna be ready, you need to be faithful. You need to have faith and you need to be faithful with what you've been given. The point of the parable of the talents, be faithful with what you have been given. And that's what ultimately leads to the one talent guy being condemned. He doesn't go to hell because he has less. He's condemned because he does nothing with what he's given. He buries it in the ground. And then when the master shows up, he starts making excuses. Well, it's because you're actually kind of hard to work for, if you haven't noticed. He starts making excuses. And, and what does the master call him? Wicked and slothful. Your translation, your Bible might say wicked and lazy. But this word, it's not the way we normally think of lazy. When you, when you hear lazy, what do you think normally? You think someone who's doing nothing. If they're lazy, they just don't do anything. They don't accomplish anything. They never you know, are productive. But that's not what this is talking about. Later in the Bible, Paul uses this word and he says, it is of no trouble for me to write to you. And the word trouble there is the same word that's translated lazy here. So again, it's a completely different idea. It's like this. You know when you have something to do and you gotta get it done. You have to, but you don't want to. So you will literally do anything else to avoid doing that thing. You know what I'm talking about? That's what this is saying. This is what the master is saying when he calls him late. He's saying, this is how you are treating what God has called you to be faithful with. You're, you're busy. You're not sitting around doing nothing. You're busy, but you're really comfortable. You're getting so busy in the comfortable so that you can avoid what is faithful, what God has called you to do. So the question, again, you need to answer. I need to answer is, are you ready? Are you being faithful to what God is calling you to do with what he's giving you? And maybe you're saying, man, I don't know. What does that even mean? Like I want to be, right? I think in some ways, we, we're all different. Like we said, God has uniquely wired us and gifted us in our lives. So being faithful is, is different for every single one of us. But I think in the most essential way, in the most primary way, faithfulness to God is the exact same for all of us. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, Bill mentioned this last week, and so we won't spend too much time on it, but Acts chapter one says, you got the resurrected Jesus, he's with his disciples and they ask him the same question they asked back in Matthew 24. When are you, when are you gonna actually rule and reign? Is now the time, they say, that you'll restore the kingdom of Israel? Is it now? They're still asking the same question. Jesus gives them the same answer. He goes, it's not for you to know the time. Again, it, it's not for us to know when, 
But knowing that it will happen should change the way we live. Verse eight, he says, here's why. But you will what? Receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Being faithful means that we live our lives and we use everything we have to testify as witnesses to the goodness and the grace of God to us. It means that we see ourselves as a part of the work of the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. You know, that's not just for the five talent guy. That's for all of us. You, church, are a part of the Great Commission. This is what it means to be faithful. Yes, we're all different, but what that means is that we have all been given unique opportunities from God to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Again, we, we, have, we think about this differently and we think, oh, the five talent guy, man, God could really use them. No, 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 you go and make disciples. I think the real hero in this parable might be the two talent guy. Because if you notice in the parable, he spends zero time comparing his two talents to the five talent guy and zero time complaining about it. No time comparing, doesn't make excuses, doesn't complain. He just goes, he's just faithful. He's given me this, I'm gonna steward it to the best of my ability. He goes. There's a sense of urgency about what the master has given him and he gets to work. Is there risk involved in that? Sure. Did it take courage? Absolutely. What we don't know in the story is it says the master delayed. So we just assume the guy had five talents and it just went real easy for him and he just turned that in 100% profit, just like that. Well, there was ups and downs in that, I guarantee you. It was a journey. It took courage. It took risk. It took faith. But they took those steps of faith. He, the two-talent guy took zero time comparing his two talents or complaining about what he doesn't have, about how it's not fair. And again, the talents were given out by the master. Verse 15 says, each according to his own ability, which means this. Every time we look at somebody else's life and go, man, I wish my life was like that or I was gifted like him or I could, my husband was like hers or whatever. Every time we compare what we have to what other people have, you know what that is? It is an accusation against the God of the universe. Because verse 15 says, he gave to each according to his own ability. So God has given us what we have and what he knows we have the capacity for. And every single time we look at them and go, man, I wish I was gifted like them. Then God could really use me. We're accusing God, saying, God, if you were actually good to me, then I could be faithful to you. Here's the encouragement in this passage. This guy, he doesn't make excuses, doesn't complain. He's just faithful. Here's the encouragement. I love this. Again, verse 21 and verse 23 are the exact same, which means super gifted people aren't given a greater reward from God. Right? Again, we think about it, we think that God keeps score differently, right? God doesn't keep score like, but who can get the most points for the kingdom? Again, he's in the heavens, he does whatever he wants. He doesn't need us. God's scorecard is not about who can score the most points for the kingdom, it's about faith and our willingness to trust him with what he's given us, whatever it may be. Whatever it may be, instead of spending time complaining or, or trying to be someone we're not. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you think about your life this way? Like, do you ever think about your life this way? Your life right now, no matter where it is. And I know, you're not to where you wanna be yet. I get it. Right now. You are a part of the work of the Great Commission. Do you think about your life this way? You think about your relationships this way. Your marriage is, is an opportunity from God to point to the goodness and grace of who he is and what he's done. And it's not just for God's glory, it's also for your joy, because God's good. Your marriage is for your joy and for God's glory. Your parenting exists 
to point to the goodness and the grace of God. Yes, and discipling them and, and preaching the word of God to them, but enjoying actually being a parent. Your friendships, your neighbors, your, the people you work with, all your relationships are a gift from God to be enjoyed, an opportunity to testify to the fact that God gave you grace you didn't deserve. And right now, the fact that our lungs are expanding and contracting with air is a gift from the giver of life. All of it points to testify to the fact that we receive from God what is the farthest thing from what we deserve. Do you think about your job this way? Not just the money you make from it. Your actual job. God has uniquely wired you and made you for a reason. Right? He's put you in place to do, be a part of, of the work that he is doing in the world. And I know it's so easy to go, yeah, but not my job. I don't even have a job. I stay at home. There's no better job in the world. What an opportunity to, to uh, come alongside little hearts and souls and represent Jesus to them in the way, again, we'll talk about in a little bit, like extending kindness to them, modeling for them, pointing them to the hope that's available in Jesus. Do you think about your job this way? He's uniquely wired you. And all of this is true about you, whether you are a high school student working a part-time job just to get a little extra money, all the way to you're in three decades of the career you always wanted to be in and everywhere in between. This is true for us. Right? And I know, again, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, I just work at a coffee shop. Firstly, I would say to that, it's an accusation against God because he's sovereign. Secondly, I would say that's sacred ministry. Okay? <laughs> that is sacred ministry. And then lastly, even that, church, hear me when I say this. Whatever it is, whatever you have, if you work at a coffee shop and you hate it or you sweep floors or, or wash dishes, I don't, I don't know, whatever it is, the things that you have to do that you don't like doing, even that, that's a season that is purposed by God. It's an opportunity for you to be a witness and a representative of Jesus wherever he has you. What does that mean, right? What does it look like to represent Jesus wherever he has us? That could be a whole sermon series. I'm already over. I'll say this, Acts chapter one, Jesus says, not for you to know when, but you will receive power. What you know about what's coming will change. You will receive power from who? The spirit and you will be my witnesses. So what does the spirit do in us? This is how we testify to the goodness of grace of God, no matter what it is, no matter what the task is or, or whatever. The spirit of God gives us power. First, he does a lot of things. First thing I think of is Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit, right? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This means this, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is not a door we walk through to enter the Christian life. It is the soil by which we root ourselves into so the spirit of God through his power can bear his fruit in our lives and we are now loving in ways that we haven't been before. And we are patient in ways that we never would be if it weren't for Jesus. And we're gentle to people who don't deserve that from us and we're kind and on and on and on we can go. This is what it looks like to live as a witness and a representative to Jesus in wherever space he has. It means you work hard. It means you show up on time. It means you stay late if that's necessary. It means you be honest about the things that you're struggling with. It means we live transparently in our relationships. We work faithfully in the things that God's given us to. Again, Jesus is saying, since you know what will happen then, it should change the way you live now. So we testify to him with our lives by what we do and we testify to him with what we say with our mouths. First Peter three, verse 15 says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Here's what that means. When you live your life for Jesus, rooted in the soil of the gospel, not trying to earn God's love and approval, but knowing it's been given to you because of who Christ is, when you live your life that way and you start loving people who don't deserve it, 
and being patient with people who don't deserve it, folks are gonna ask questions. They're gonna go, what, what the world? Why did you not lose your mind on him? Man, I would have, whatever. Why'd you not do that? You go, I'm gonna tell you why. Because God gave me grace and I didn't deserve it and so I'm gonna extend it to the people around me. People ask questions. He says, be prepared to make a defense. The point is, don't just live this way. Tell people why you live this way. That's what a witness does, right? Come into a courtroom, tell us what you've seen. Tell us what you heard, what happened. And you go, I found Jesus to be so much more gracious than I ever thought possible. His love to count for me in spaces that I never thought it would. His kindness to be extended to me in ways that I just didn't even, couldn't even imagine, couldn't fathom. That's what we're saying. Church, being faithful with what we've got means we should actually be sharing the gospel. We're not like the people in Noah's day where they were unaware until the flood came. We know now. We're not unaware. And here's the thing. We know that there is a flood coming that is far worse than what they experienced in Noah's day. God's wrath poured out on sin There is a flood coming that is far worse than what they experienced, but the good news of the gospel is that he has given us an ark that is far greater than what can be made in human hands. Jesus Christ lays his life down on our behalf. We trust in him. We live our lives out of this reality. He does not give us the when. He gives us the what to be sure of because it's to change the way we live now. And church, it is faith in him, faith in Christ, who he is and what he's done, not what we can do or what we can do for him. Faith in him and being faithful with what he gives us is the only way for us to stand before God. We'll talk about the final judgment next week, for us to stand before God and hear the words we hear there. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So the question, are you ready? Do you have faith in who he is and what he's done? Are you faithful with what you've been given? Let me pray, and then we'll respond in worship. Father, I'm thankful. And that's an understatement, Lord. We are grateful to be able to sit here in this room right now today and confidently say that we are loved by you, not because of what we do, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Help us, Father. Help us to live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit, to to think about the Christian life, not as the gospel being a door we walk through, but to plant ourselves in the soil of the reality of who you are and what you've done and to then bear fruit for your kingdom. We need your help. Where someone's in the room today, if they're questioning whether or not they have faith, God, Spirit, would you remind them, convince them now of your love for them? God, and where we've heard this before, would you compel us again by your love to extend it to the people around us? We need your help. Help us. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you would stand up, let's respond by singing.